good afternoon or whatever time that this broadcast finds you. That's the glorious thing about these podcasts. You can listen to them at any time and any point in time. Um, right now we're in 2021, but maybe you're listening to this 50 years from now. Who knows? Whatever the case, I'm so glad you're with me today. I hope you're having a wonderful week as we return to the book of Revelation, our study in here. And we are on our fourth church, which means we're on our fourth church age as well. And if you want to follow along, that means we're in Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 18 down to the end of the chapter as we cover the church at Thyatira. So let me read there. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so you see some uh, some good and some bad there in the church at Thyatira. Um, we we left off last time with the church during the uh, great period of um, toleration, and we said that that church, being Pergamus was a church age from AD 313 through 476, starting with the Edict of Milan in 313. Well, we pick up, there is a little bit of overlap here, because nothing's ever really neatly tied up in a bow, but we do have some overlap because this church age, Church of Thyatira, is AD 445 through the 1500s, and also represents at the beginning there the overlap from this great toleration which the with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. So this is the Rise of the Roman Catholic Church age, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term. Uh, let's start first with the commendations of the church at Thyatira that we saw there. God gives the first new, first uh, or the, the good news first. And uh, I'm just going to summarize these that he talks about. Uh, these are in, found way back up here in verse number um, 19. He talks about their works. He talks about their love or charity. He talks about their faith. He talks about their service. He talks about their patience. And the fact also to 
finalized. He says there in verse 19, the last of these works were more than the first. So they were active. They were very active. So a lot of commendations here. I count at least six that are, that are specified here in verse 19. But there also was a danger. And then he brings that up in the very next verse. And that danger, I'm going to summarize that first for you. The danger, and, and it's represented today as well, is the falling into ecumenism. Now, it, 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 it's really ironic that we have certain ecumenical councils today. And that word ecumenism, a lot of times in religion, is used as if it's a positive thing. Um, if you need, if if you want to know what I mean by ecumenism, it's the idea of of all religions coming under one umbrella, I guess. And uh, the idea that the, the 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 bad thing about that, of course, is, it should be obvious, but the bad thing is you have to sacrifice doctrine in order to do that. So a lot of times these ecumenical movements will try to find some common ground that everybody has. Like for example, oh you. You're involved in a monotheistic religion. Well, so am I. So we have some common ground. And I guess on the surface, that's true. There is a sort of common ground, but really there's not much substantial. When I think about, when we talk about the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, I think about what the, the Pope did back in the late 90s. I remember this because I was in seminary at the time, and this will give you an idea of how old I am. But back in the late 90s, I was in seminary, and I remember this, uh, I saw this video that come out around about that time. I can't remember what Pope was uh, in place at that time. I want to say it was Pope John Paul. But um, anyways, I could be way off on that. But the idea was he was trying to bring together the Israelis and the uh, Muslims under the guise of ecumenism, saying, and he, and he even said something to the order that, you know, we're all serving the same God. But in actuality, just because you believe in a personal God, a, a uh, one in whom man is fashioned after, so I'm talking about not like a nebulous gas or a creature or a mythological type of personage, does not mean that it's the same God. Even if you use capital G, little o, little d, to... to to qualify your God does not mean that it's the same God. The, the God of the Muslims is, is not the same as the God of the Bible. Now, the Muslims have one God whose name is Allah, Allah, and we serve the God of the Jews. Of course, we've been engrafted into salvation, but the Jewish God's name that we serve goes by different names, but is the idea of Yahweh or Yehovah. And they're not the same person. And really, your viewpoint on what someone is or isn't, it, take, take Jesus. This is a great example. A lot of people look at the same Jesus and have created different things out of him. Some people say he never existed. Some people say he was a very, very good man akin to like a Gandhi. And then there's others like me, like Christians, that believe that he is God's only begotten son and God himself. So ecumenism is a danger and it threatens the church constantly. We must never sacrifice doctrine. We must never sacrifice our beliefs. 
in order to appeal to a group of people or in order to include a group of people. Keep in mind that God is not all-inclusive as well. In the book of Revelation, we're going to find out that at the day of judgment, he's going to separate the believers from the unbelievers, the sheep and the goats. He's going to separate them. And one will enter into everlasting life and one will enter into eternal punishment. And there's no room to quibble about this issue. These are not standards or rules that I have made. These are not doctrines that are created by man. These are God's doctrines. So we have to be very careful about that. And, and uh, the whole idea of denominations exists because people depart from the truth. It, denominations don't exist because certain Christians hold to the fundamentals of the faith and refuse to budge. It's, it's so crazy that people that try to hold to what God's Word teaches firmly, when it teaches so clearly certain doctrines, that we are the ones that are called the separatists, or we're the ones that are called the, the ones who, who are disunified. No, you stand with Christ, you're unified with Christ, you stand with him, you honor him, you're loyal to him, loyal to his doctrines. If you love me, keep my commandments. Is that not what Jesus said? We're loyal to him and we let the chips fall where they, where they may. So when people move away from the truth, then they have to deal with that. And they can set up their own whole religious systems with big churches and big populations and think they're really doing something. But you're not if you're not standing in truth. Um, the size of your church does not dictate God's blessing. Now, oftentimes, God does bless churches with growth. I mean, that's an obvious thing. But just because you have a large-sized congregation does not immediately equate to the fact that God's pleased with what we're doing. Remember that Jesus had only 12 followers. Um, so by human standards, by the world standards, he was a miserable failure. But by the standards that really matter, God said he was well pleased with him. And let God be pleased with us, not displeased as he was with the church's acceptance of Jezebel. This is the idea of ecumenism. Um, Jezebel was drawing people just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament uh, was drawing people into certain things that are the same earmarks that we see in the ecumenism movement the ecumenical movement that is alive and well today and I want to outline these as they're brought out in our text that he notes here the first one is idolatry so God's people were being threatened with the temptation of idolatry. And he talks about that there in verse 20. He says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou suffered that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. So she was coming in the name of God, quote unquote. Don't necessarily think that everybody comes in the guise of a prophet or a follower of Christ truly is. There are things called sheep. Or they're all things called, called, uh, called wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jezebel is one of these. And what did she do? She taught and seduced God's servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Um, Jezebel historically, and I believe this is a, is a signifier here. I don't know that, the, that this prophet's name was Jezebel. I think he's using Jezebel from the Old Testament. Um, she's the one that introduced the Israelites to idolatry in 1 Kings 16, 31. 
specifically to Baal worship. Now, Baal was the god of the sun. It is interesting that in the time when this was written, Thyatira, that city there in Asia Minor, their highest held false deity in their society was Apollo, also known as the god of the sun. But God shows his superior to both in verse 28. He draws us to a, to a close, very poetically, I guess you'd say, when he says that those who are faithful and overcome shall give him the morning star. The morning star. Who is the morning star? Well, it, it of course is a metaphor in, in, in some respects because the morning star is the sun. So even though people were being drawn into the worship of Apollo, the little g god of the sun, the true god of the sun that is over all creation, including the sun, is Jesus. Malachi 4.2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, capital S, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. That great prophetic passage in Malachi chapter 4. Um, so idolatry was a was a threat to these people in Thyatira. And it's a threat today. And one of the characteristics of ecumenism is, is idolatry in the church. The, this could simply be the setting up of certain shrines as having some kind of healing spiritual qualities. It could be setting up of the worship of saints or the elevation of saints, which began in our last church. Uh, as far as church age uh, theology goes, they, they started to revere saints, uh, special people. Now, to clarify, we are all saints who are in Christ. We are all priests. We're able to come straight to God. We're not high priests, but we're all priests, little p. And we are all saints, little s. Saints are those who have converted to Christ through the, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Um, but idolatry is alive and well today as people worship, people worship saints, people worship uh, people, people worship uh, idolat idolatrous shrines. And I think about uh, flirting. There's a, there's a flirtation with idolatry when people become big followers of certain preachers. And this could happen even in fundamental Christianity. And the worship of edifices. Um, an undue glory attached to a building, for example. We've got to be very careful about that. I know that may sound silly to some. But there are some people that, that feel like they have a higher level of worship depending on the acoustics of where they worship, which is really complete uh, nonsense, really, uh, if, it's, if it's taken out of context. Um, there can be an appreciation for architecture, of course, but for someone to say, oh, this church, I feel closer to God because of the physical elements of it, I think it may be a little bit misplaced. So idolatry is one of the earmarks of ecumenism, as is number two, spiritual intermarriage. It talks about fornication here, or unequal yoking. Jezebel, which is synonymous with harlotry, um, we use that not, not as commonly today, but you will hear people use the word Jezebel to talk about a person with loose morals, a woman with loose morals. Um, Jezebel was the first heathen queen to be taken by a Jewish king, Ahab. Of course, Ahab was, was no um, father of the year or uh, citizen of the year, for sure. Um, spiritual intermarriage. So the Bible 
teaches against intermarriage, which is the idea of a saved person, a Christian marrying a lost person. Um, God speaks against that because it's an unequal yoking. Well, spiritually, we can do the same in our churches and in our faith. We can come into an unequal spiritual marriage. And that's when churches join together with other churches, denominations, or religious groups that deny certain doctrines of the Bible. So, should I join together in a close fellowship with a lost person or an apostate? No. It's very simple. No. Um, your town may have an organization where pastors get together to fellowship and to decide certain things in the spiritual direction of the community. Um, I, would only, I would only be comfortable joining one of those things if we all ascribe to the same doctrine. And I know that doesn't sound very tolerant, but I believe that that gives the right impression of what's going on. Because you see, when you come into a fellowship or an agreement or a contract with someone, you're representing each other. And you cannot promote or provide the um, impetus to someone believing that you stand in a certain area when you don't. Um, the Bible talks about intermarriage between people. It also talks about intermarriage between spiritual groups. When, it's, when it says things like, um, what concord hath Belial with God? What, what, uh, what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer to that, of course, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. There is none. Spiritual intermarriage or unequal yoking. Now, the third thing about ecumenism is more a principle instead of a earmark, which is that um, they, they rule for a time until they are ruled by that apostate person or principle. Um, he talks about <clears throat> he talks about uh, Jezebel being this prophetess that begins to teach. So she's she's kind of a an outsider, I guess, but she's teaching, and then she seduces the servants. So the person that was an outsider is welcomed in, and then what happens? Well, if they don't repent, as it's talked about in verse twenty one, he says, "I'll cast her into a bed." And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And the principle there about the bed is this whole idea about the fellowship and, and uh, intertwining with that other person and what they believe. And he says, I'm going to judge that. Um, this would be called spiritual whoredom. I think about the verse that says, shall a man take fire into his bosom and not be burnt? You cannot take these people into your fellowship. You cannot let lost people join your church. You cannot let apostates teach in your church and become involved in your church and follow these people and not expect to reap the same judgment that they will reap. And I think that's the principle of verse 22. Um, of course, there's a greater magnitude to verse 22 in the, in the church age at large, which will come to pass later on because... Antichrist will come under under one guise. One of the guys they'll come with is is ecumenism, is the idea of a one world religion, and those that buy into that, tolerate it and accept it and welcome it in, 
are going to go through great tribulation. So there's kind of a uh, foresight given here in verse 22 of what's going to happen. Um, but spiritual whoredom, spiritual fornication in practice. Now this is pictured quite clearly in the book of Hosea, or Hosea, however you want to pronounce that, um, with the Jewish nation, how they had intermarried with groups that promoted idolatry and false teachings and a... Um, a denial of scriptural doctrine, and so on. Now, the um, book of Revelation will talk about this spiritual fornication and whoredom of the false religious systems. When we get to Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, uh, so we'll look at it when we get there. Now, as we've done with the first few churches, this fourth church of Thyatira we want to look at the etymology of the word Thyatira, which is two words put together in the Greek, a word that means sacrifice, and then the word of, of the idea of the continuality of that. So basically the idea of Thyatira is a continual sacrifice. Um, this would speak to um, Catholicism, really, because part of Catholicism's tenets is that Jesus is a continuous sacrifice. Um, which really is a misunderstanding of what Jesus did on Calvary, which was a once-for-all um, death for atoning for, uh, for sin. And Hebrews actually goes into this in quite some detail about his death being once-for-all and that uh, Christ should not be, um, you know, be, be crucified more than once, so to speak. Um, and there's, there's a couple things that come out of this that uh, are problems. One is transubstantiation, which is the idea of uh, this continual sacrifice because um, the, death of, the, the death of Christ on the cross becomes something that's continuous as they believe that, um, well, some Catholics would believe that the bread actually becomes the body and the juice actually becomes the blood of Christ once they touch your, touch your tongue, basically. That's the idea of tra transubstantiation. Um, or the communion rite that's observed in the Catholic Church. Also, another idea is the idea of penance, which is the idea that those that are still alive can pay to get their loved ones out of purgatory or keep them from hell. This is literally a continual sacrifice by man to keep from judgment being passed by God, a final judgment. And then just the idea of Jesus being pictured uh, on the crucifix as being on the cross instead of being off the cross uh, really reinforces this idea of, of um, the continuous sacrifice instead of uh, giving way to the victory of the resurrection that would follow. All right, so we talked about the danger of ecumenism. What is the answer to it? How do we break from this? How do we respond to ecumenism? And I think he gives that here for us when we start getting down to verse 25 and, and, and following. Number one, courageous defense of the truth. To courageously defend the truth despite the opposition. In verse 25, he says, That which ye have already, hold fast till I come. So your beliefs, hold fast to your beliefs. Hold tight to them. Hold on to them. Don't sacrifice any doctrinal truth for the sake of a quote-unquote greater good. If you have to, you have not pursued the greater good because what can be a greater pursuit than God's truth? And standing firm on that. We must have a courageous defense of the truth. This means being very transparent with what you believe. Instead of trying to hide it or water it down. Which is the tendency of a lot of, a lot of um, popular religions and denominations and people. 
so that they can have a greater audience, so they can have more acceptance, so that they can make more money, or whatever the case may be. So we must courageously defend the truth. Um, people are too worried today about being relevant, and so they want this large audience. Um, they want to just, you know, kind of hit the, the basic points so that they can have as many listeners or watchers or purchasers as possible, as many consumers as possible of that um, that they're putting out. But defense of the truth, conviction, real conviction, and really believing the truth and the um, doctrines of God's word, which will make you uh, quite peculiar and will make you stand out, is the way to go. Courageous defense of the truth. Number two, answer to the ecumenism is to remember that Christ is the ultimate authority, not some synod, not some group, not some denomination, not some council, not some convention. Christ is the ultimate authority. And honestly, I feel like the more conventions and groups and synods and denominations and alliances and different things we have, the more problematic things become because we slowly but surely remove the local church's autonomy and God-vested authority and give it to a para-church group, which is a very dangerous thing, very dangerous thing. Um, we must remember that Christ is the ultimate authority no matter what we do. If we have fellowships or we have different things, um, that's fine. We just have to make sure that Christ and his teachings, the teaching of the Word of God, is the ultimate authority. And this is what Jesus says, in essence, in verse 26. He says, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Keeping his works, keeping his word, keeping the truth. Christ is the ultimate authority. Now the Gnostics a sect that the Thyatiran church was encountering took great pride in knowing the depths of divine things. You know, they, they really put a lot of impetus on their knowledge. Knowledge is good as long as that knowledge helps you more efficiently serve God. But knowledge puffs up. And knowledge becomes dangerous. And knowledge becomes idolatry at times. So we have to be very careful about that. Not to take pride in our knowledge, but to take comfort and direction from our relationship with Christ. First um, Corinthians 2.10 says, God hath revealed these deeper things unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. It's the Spirit that gives understanding and enlightenment, not man. And only when men are guided by the Spirit, possessed by the Holy Spirit, directed by Him and illuminated by Him, as they take their humble position before God, only then can we uh, have some sort of trustworthiness in what they do. But we always check it back to Christ and His Word as the ultimate authority. Now we must note that the power which He gives over the nation is only God's to give. No one else has this power. Um, God's is the power to give because he's the ultimate authority. And we have to remember that. A third thing is to realize that Christ will rule over the nations, not being a partnership with them. Christ is going to be the ultimate ruler. Christ is above all things. So, so all our knowledge, all of our thoughts, all of our alliances, all of our discussions and beliefs, all should bow at the throne of Christ. And Christ has to be the ultimate authority, as I just noted. And we have to realize that Christ is going to rule over the nations, not form a partnership with them. 
Now, Thyatira was a home to a number of guilds, none of the least of which was that of using dyes, D-Y-E-S, coloring dyes for fabrics. Um, Lydia, who who was a um, fabric merchant, came from Thyatira. It was also a center of pottery and a pottery guild. Um, Verse 27 becomes very vivid when you consider the fact that there was pottery guilds and pottery makers all around them. So Revelation 2 verse 27 says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Um, God is going to rule with a rod of iron. What does that mean, a rod of iron? It means there's no bending. There's no um, flexibility in uh, Christ's rule. And what I mean by that is not that it's not a, a rule of love and grace and mercy, but the idea is he's going to judge, and when he judge, it'll be firm. There is going to be no buying off of this judge. There is going to be no flexibility because God has been so clear with what he expects. So we will see this develop more in the book of Revelation. The, the ruling that he's going to do with the rod of iron, we'll find out later in our studies, it comes to pass in the millennial period when Jesus actually reigns physically from, um, from a physical throne on earth. And so this becomes another kind of um, forecast or prophetic passage within the same book. Uh, fourth thing to remember to answer to ecumenism is to realize that Christ not only does rule justly, but he rules without remorse. Verse 18 and verse 27. Verse 18, we kind of skipped over this at the beginning, but I want to bring it back now. Verse 18 talks about that uh, this Jesus, the Son of God, has eyes like unto a flame of fire and feet are like fine brass. We kind of saw this earlier in the book in chapter 1. But the, eye of the, the, eyes of the, uh, the idea of the eyes like a flame of fire and feet like brass speak of the fact, they both speak of judgment passing through the flames. Um, the eyes speak of what he sees and the feet speaks of what he does. Everything that Christ sees, everything that he does moves in perfect judgment, perfect justice. And perfect justice has no place for forgiveness outside of the forgiveness that he's offered. There is no cheap way out. And so we have to understand that. And we've seen the kind, loving, accepting, merciful Jesus in the Gospels. Well, now's the time to repent. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, now's the time to repent. Because when he comes again, he's not going to have place for mercy. He's going to come to exact judgment and justice. Um, The time is now to act. Um, And then number five, realize that there is nothing in common between the believer and the unbeliever in the way of key philosophy. There's no peace treaty among men. Don't worry about establishing a spiritual peace treaty with the world um, because they are under a false religious system that's going to be dominated by Antichrist in the time to come. The only answer for mankind is not an agreement with men, but an agreement with God that comes through the blood of Christ. 
And that's just the most basic of most important things for us to remember. Well, that is our look at the church at Thyatira. And I think there's a lot to process and consume there when we think about this church. Um, some grave things to consider. Um, if you're a Christian, I hope that this has been uh, educational for you. I hope it really convicts us about our need to reach people and to be examples to people and to not compromise on the truth. Compromising the truth will never really accomplish much for us. Uh, we're lights in the world. You know, we're, we're lights uh, drawing people out of the darkness. We're, we're, we're lights that separate from the darkness. And so we got to remember that constantly. But if you have any questions or um, comments you'd like to leave, you can do so at spirituallydiscernedpodcast at gmail.com. Um, this, if you're listening to this on the Revelation channel, then the, uh, I'm sorry, the Exposition Expedition Revelation channel, you're in the right place to get these the quickest possible. This is the first place that it comes out on this dedicated channel. I want to remind you, maybe you're just dropping in here as a first-time listener. I want to remind you also that we have an Exposition Expedition Leviticus channel that I'd love for you to check out as well. And then we have our main channel, Spiritually Discerned Podcast. And uh, really, that's kind of a catch-all and, and bring some other stuff in there to play as well. So three different Bible podcasts that you can check out, and I hope you do. And I hope that you'll write us with any questions. I hope that you'll like this episode. I hope you'll share it with somebody. And I hope that you will uh, continue to listen as we explore the book of Revelation. Until next time, God bless you and have a wonderful rest of your week.